Welcome to Christchurch Chislehurst podcast. Here's another one from Dave, and he talks about perfectionism. And for those who are a bit of a perfectionist, we apologize now for the slight echo on the recording. You may be guessing what is this well-being sermon going to be all about? Is it about jealousy, perhaps? Are we jealous of people who seem to have the perfect life? Well, no, I'm going to talk about perfectionism, which is why it's interesting that we went slightly wrong this morning with the readings. But let's establish, first of all, what we mean by perfectionism and how it reveals itself in us. Anne Wilson said, perfectionism is self-abuse of the highest order and a dictionary definition would be the uncompromising pursuit of excellence. Now, we might not think that pursuing perfection is a bad way to live, trying to do our very best, trying to be excellent. But there's a subtle difference between aiming to do our best and an absolute need for everything to be perfect all the time. A psychiatrist writing in Psychology Today said, perfectionists are people whose standards are high beyond reach or reason, who strain compulsively and unremittingly towards impossible goals. So let me just read from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 7. This is the story of Samuel, the, the uh, prophet anointing David, who's going to be the next king. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders uh, of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is the word of the Lord. I remember attending a, uh, a clergy conference. It was actually the Holy Trinity Brompton conference a few years ago, and one of the, uh, the vicars from Holy Trinity Brompton, Will van der Hart, who's written a lot about well-being, um, was talking about how he had been to a, a, a clergy meeting himself, and he had what was called imposter syndrome, because he walked in and he saw all these very well-educated, very highly renowned uh, church leaders, and he thought, I really shouldn't be here. I'm, I'm just so imperfect. There's absolutely no way that I can compete with this. You know, I'm, I'm meant to be 
teaching them, and yet I, I feel like an imposter. And I have to say that all of us sitting there suddenly thought, oh, I'm glad it's not just me. But we can sometimes feel in a group of others that we are imperfect, we are the imposter, we are the one that shouldn't actually be there. Part of the problem with perfectionism is that we never obtain the standard that we're aspiring towards. I, say, I have to say I completely identify with what Will van der Hart was talking about that day. And you might imagine that by reaching the pinnacle of success in whatever given career you're in, that someone might no longer feel dogged by the need to do better. But even in the world of music, performers can reach the top of their game and still feel like they're not good enough. Here's an example, Madonna, showing considerable self-awareness in being able to say this, said in an interview at the height of her fame, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. So what are the signs of perfectionism, that, that it's, it's gone from just trying to do our best into a sort of obsessive need to get everything perfect all the time? Well, we can see signs of perfection in, perfectionism in ourselves when we overwork. We just think we, we, we haven't reached the high enough standard in our work, so we, we drive ourselves to the point of exhaustion. We have a rigid belief system telling us constantly that we should be doing better and we need to please everybody all the time. We see perfectionism when we find it hard to receive any kind of constructive criticism, but we also fail to celebrate any kind of achievement, or when we put off making decisions or performing tasks because we're just afraid that we're gonna get it wrong and make a mistake. Those are all signs of perfectionism. And the roots of perfectionism, like so many of the well-being issues that we've been discussing recently, are likely to go back to our childhood and that feeling of not being good enough. The CEO of um, a charity that we uh, are connected to called Care for the Family, Rob Parsons, uh, describes an incident with his daughter when she came home from school joyfully shouting, Dad, I got 95% in maths. And Rob Parsons said that his response to his daughter was, well, what happened to the other 5%? And where were you in the class order? And he said, I'm really not proud of that memory. What did that do to my daughter's feelings about whether she was good enough? And perfectionism can lead to all sorts of other issues. It can lead us to feel quite angry about our lives, about what's going on, about why we never get to that place of perfection. It can make us feel anxious and it can lead to depression. So for followers of Jesus, there is a lot that we can learn about any traits of perfectionism which can either creep into our lives or, or even dominate our lives. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible tells us that God's love for us is unconditional. John says in one of his letters in the New Testament, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Paul does his best to remind us over and over again that we are saved by grace, not by doing good works or by being perfect. And he prays that 
Christians may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then he repeats the same message to the Roman church about the extent of God's love for us in Romans 8, that there's nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the first thing we need to remember, is that God loves us no matter what we've done, no matter how much we've achieved. God loves us totally. So if that's what Paul says, and that's what John says, how do we make sense of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect? Well, we need to go back to the original Greek, because the original Greek reveals that perfect, in this context, is a word called teleoi, relating much more to wholeness and maturity than perfection. And the context for that verse is related to the instructions that he's just given about love. And he says, you are to love not just people who are your friends or your family, but you're to have a maturity of love, a wholeness of love that cares for everyone, even those that don't like you very much, even your enemies. So that's what Jesus meant in that verse that could so often put us off. Another important aspect of the Bible related to this subject is that it's perfectly obvious that God loves to choose imperfect people like me, like you, to join with him in making the world a better place, to join with him in the coming in of his kingdom and sharing in his mission. Think about some of those Old Testament characters, for example. Abraham was impatient. He lied about his wife. He brought about the, the birth of Ishmael because he couldn't wait for God to bring Isaac along. We come to Jacob, he was, his name means the deceiver, and he deceived his family on a number of occasions. Moses had killed somebody, killed an Egyptian before he was chosen to go back to Egypt. Gideon was seriously timid and had low self-esteem and really had no understanding at all that God could use him. Joseph boasted and showed off but then got chosen by God to be a great leader in Egypt. The Bible makes no effort to hide the flaws of God's people, to show their great imperfections. And just turning to the passage that we've heard from 1 Samuel, the contrast between David and Saul shows how, just how damaging perfectionism can be. Saul was originally chosen as the first king, and he had great potential, and he was making courage and wise decisions in the beginning of his leadership. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 10 and 11, showing mercy to people who questioned his authority. But unfortunately, Saul's need for perfection led him to impatiently take the role that Samuel should have had instead of waiting for the prophet to arrive to carry out an important offering. Saul stepped in because he couldn't wait. He wanted the situation to be perfect. And in addition to that, Saul was clearly a great soldier, but his striving to be perfect, the very best, made him really jealous of David to the point where he obsessively wanted to kill David for many years. And it led to all sorts of emotional mental health issues for Saul, and he stepped, had to step down as the king. By contrast, David was far from perfect, but Paul writes that God had said about David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man, a man after my own heart. 
And in that story we heard earlier of Samuel's journey to find a new king to replace Saul, Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse. Samuel gets to look at seven of Jesse's sons and is certain that one of them will be anointed as the king because they all look tall and strong. They all look like they could do the job really well. However, it's clear that God has someone else in mind. So Samuel asked Jesse, having looked at those seven, do you have any more sons? Jesse says, well, yeah, there is the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. In other words, but he's just a shepherd boy. He can't possibly be the one that God has in mind. But when David's called for, it's clear to Samuel that he is the one. And he now understands what God had said to him earlier, that famous verse, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's so important that we apply these principles today. In our social media and our other interactions to remember that God is interested in our hearts, not our outward appearance, not indeed our achievements. David went on to have many successes as king, but he was far from perfect. He committed adultery, he was responsible for the death of Uriah. He fell out with members of his family. He had many troubles. But despite all of this, throughout his life, David's primary focus was to worship and to honor God. Rather than being driven by perfectionism, David was humble. He was repentant when he made mistakes. He recognized his need for God's mercy in his life. When Paul writes to the Philippian church, the other passage that we heard earlier, about his attitude towards Christ. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that could all too easily turn into perfectionism if that's combined with a, a legalism about striving to keep God's laws. But Paul is too immersed in an experience and an understanding of God's grace to fall into that trap of legalism. Instead, Paul is very aware of his own failures and limitations, and he says, not that I've already obtained all of this or have been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not yet consider myself to have taken hold of it. I've got a long way to go. And that's a relief to all of us to know that perfectionism is not the right way to go. It's not right to keep thinking that we've got to, we've got to achieve this level of perfection that God is not calling us to. And Paul is possibly at his most honest in his second letter to the Corinthians when we find perhaps one of the strongest antidotes in the Bible to perfectionism. Paul says, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. How many of us want to expose our weaknesses to people? But he explains it further in chapter 12 and he talks about a thorn in his flesh. And he asks God to remove this thorn three times. But God's response to Paul is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We never discover what that thorn in the flesh was. And I think perhaps there's a good reason for that because all of us have something that we might call a thorn in the flesh. 
Something that we might cry out to God and say, Lord, if, if only that wasn't in my life, I'd be perfect. If only that problem wasn't there, if only that attitude wasn't there, if only that situation wasn't there, things would be perfect. And God says, no, my, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. The thorn exposes our imperfection. But the solution is that God's greatness is truly seen when he works through his weak, imperfect children, you and me. And we can boast in our weaknesses and claim this wonderful God that we have whose power is made perfect in our weakness. So Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So today, if any of us are struggling with any traits of perfectionism or whether it's something that's dominating our lives, let's remember the incredible, unconditional love that God has for us that doesn't change no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what we achieve or we don't achieve today. God loves us. God cares for us. And God accepts the fact that in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Amen. So Ken's going to lead us now in our prayers. The theme I had chosen this morning bears an amazing synergy with what Dave is saying because I'm so often drawn to that traditional hymn as I focus my prayers. And please join with me on this, this journey as we bring our prayers to the Lord this morning. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful mind, in purer lives, thy service find in deeper reverence, praise. And Lord, as we meet this morning, we come before you and seek your forgiveness for those foolish ways that have entered into our lives this week. These might be things we have done or not done, things we have said or not said, or things that we have thought. So let us use the words of the Lord's Prayer as we seek that forgiveness which is so freely given. Do join with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Father, we ask that the words of praise may be heard across the world this morning, that the creator of the world might be glorified. Lord, we're so aware at this moment of the anguish and distress that affects the lives of so many folk around the world. We have recalled the memories of the Holocaust this week, 
and the acts of genocide that we often have brought to our attention. Lord, we cry out to you for all the nations. We bring before you worldwide governments at this time of pandemic. May godly principles be demonstrated in all the relationships between the nations. We bring before you, Lord, our own country and our government. We pray that you will guide them and seek, as they seek to lead our country through this situation. We pray that those, those people that in Parliament that hold a Christian faith, that they will be, as we are commanded to be, to be salt and light in situations where often there is so much division. In simple trust like those who heard beside the Syrian sea the gracious calling of the Lord, let us, like them, obey his word, rise up and follow me. Father, we thank you for our Christian world worldwide. We do remember as those, those particularly that we support as mission partners here in, in, in Christ Church. We particularly think of all those people working in the African continent today, the diocese of Kondoa in Tanzania, the Church Missionary Society workers in the Sharlands in Uganda, the Nasumbi Trust also in Uganda, and in Namibia, the Hope for Riaboth, and Footsteps in Kenya. In these times of health challenges, travel constraint and financial hardship, we pray that you will keep them all safe and allow the message of salvation to go out loud and clear. Drop your still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace. Father, we thank you that your peace is available to everyone now and it's that peace that drives out our fear in a few moments of quiet let us ask that the lord to remove the strain and stress in our lives and so that we can all experience his peace in our hearts let us remember those that are known to us in hospital suffering isolating or alone let us remember those that are mourning the loss of a close friend or relative we particularly remember the family of Avril Walker today. Let us bring all medical teaching and other key workers to the Lord. We also remember that there are separated from family, friends and loved ones. Let us also remember those that live alone. May they be able to maintain contact with others, but knowing that they remain in God's hands every day. Now, Father, let's just, in some moments of quietness, to bring our own personal prayers to you.
Lord, in your mercy, hear these prayers of your people. As we go into a new week, let us ask that the Holy Spirit be our guide and mentor in everything we do. Guide and protect our thoughts, speech and actions so that all we do will be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And we must never forget to listen out for the Lord's voice in these difficult times. Breathe through the heats of our desire, your coolness and your balm. Let sense be dumb, let flesh retire. Speak through the earthquake, wind and fire. O still, small voice of calm. O still, small voice of calm. Amen.